What's good, people? It's your boy Caesar here, and this is an episode of the Hybrid Club. Hope all is good. You know where to find us on the socials at the Hybrid Club, and you know where to find me at C Says C E A S E S A Y S. Um, well, that was not great, was it? Um, for me personally, I was at a shoot and I was on my way back home, so I was sort of traveling as kickoff happened, and so I was watching it uh yeah in the car and then sort of got home to see the the last sort of probably from the second half onwards and yeah the start of the game looked good very good brilliant in fact and then you know after about 30 minutes or so it started to look less good and i think this sounds familiar to all of us i am of course talking about arsenal's 2-2 draw on the weekend away to West Ham. Now, there are a couple of ways to look at this whole situation as it's unfolding. Um, but before we, we we do that, there is something I do want to say. The reaction from uh, what I would call sort of the online Arsenal fan base, the online Arsenal diaspora, isn't necessarily indicative of what Arsenal fans everywhere are thinking or feeling. So, you know, there are a lot of people talking about how they feel about the way Arsenal fans are reacting to, you know, the result. And I just want to caveat that, you know, that's Arsenal fans that are, whose posts are being amplified on social media. It's their reactions that are being seen and informing what the wider Arsenal diaspora believe is the fan reaction. So let's all just take a moment, you know, take a beat, chill out, just let's just take a deep breath and let's just look at the reality of the situation. Um, this is a young Arsenal side that's doing incredible things, got themselves to a point where there's seven games left, four points clear with a game in hand, still have to play the uh, the reigning champions, still have to go away to Newcastle, still have to play a team like Brighton who are doing incredibly well, but also still have to play teams like Southampton fighting for their lives. Wolves fighting for their lives, Nottingham Forest fighting for their lives. So we do need to recognise that during this run of games, it's not just going to be a case of win all of the games, draw against Newcastle, beat City, and we're champions. That's not how title runnings work. And I realise it's been a long time since we've been in one, that maybe people have forgotten, and there may be a generation of Arsenal fans who aren't used to it, who haven't seen it. But in a title run, you're going to draw some games against teams you should beat. I implore you to go look at the last 12 games that the Invincibles had and see some of the results they got. They weren't all wins. So we just need to take a deep breath. Now, the reality is that if you are an Arsenal team like the one we have, who are exciting, young, lots of potential, lots of room for growth, who are already hitting these heights when there is still room for growth, that tells you the future looks very bright indeed. But there's no point in having all of that potential if at some point you don't realise it. And so with an opportunity to go and win the league this season, I do think while we have to maintain some semblance of perspective, it you can't help as a fan but feel like you don't always get presented with an opportunity where you're top of the league with seven games to go ahead of Man City. You know, Man City give you one of these every five years on average at the moment. You know, we can't wait five years for another opportunity. 
Now, I'm not saying we'll have to, of course. We could get even better next season after summer transfer window and get even better. But you suspect the City will get better, so will United. So it's not going to be a straightforward, or we don't think it'll be straightforward. So you can balance the, the, the perspective of how well this team are doing with the sense of urgency that sometimes when life presents you with a chance, you have to take it there and then because you may not get another one. So th- there's a lot of things going on here. But we also need to, you know, just recognize that actually this is a title running and shit is going to happen. And look at the stuff that's happened in the last three games, four games. Now imagine what could happen in the next three or four games. There is a lot of football left to play. So let's all, you know, let's just keep 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 control of our sanity. Let's hold on to our sanity a little bit because things are going to get a lot more wild in the next few games. So if you're struggling to cope right now, take a deep breath. Once you finish listening to the podcast, go and do something else completely non-Arsenal related and then, you know, come back in time for the Southampton game. Um, but yeah, I, I suppose I'll start off with where I'm at with it um, and then we'll go into the game and everything else. So there are a couple of ways that I sort of looked at this coming off the back of it. On the one hand, there's we were, we're a team who went from 8th, 8th, 5th, to compete for the league and, you know, what some would consider overperforming and, you know, hitting the heights and the ceiling of the current level that we can hit. And it's been sensational to watch, you know. Just to remind myself, I've been going back and looking at old clips of games that we played earlier this season and some of the football is genuinely incredible. Teams can't live with us when we play our football. So there's that side of it. There's the other side of it is where a team who has comfortably been the best team in the league and we're potentially slowly starting to crack under pressure playing against a team that's, you know, I don't know where I stand, what are they, 15th, something like that. Um, so it's, so how do you, how do you then balance those two things, right? When we're talking about a team who you feel as though you're playing and you should comfortably beat, particularly given how bad they've been in recent recent um, recent games, although their form has picked up a little bit in the last few weeks, versus the fact that this is the Premier League and anyone can get got. And, you know, if you go into this, if you go into a running in this league thinking everyone below me I'm going to beat, then you're going to be in for a rude awakening. And I do think that there is a degree to which some fans just assumed that West Ham and Southampton would be easy wins because minds have been on the Man City game. And if you've been listening to me, you've been hearing me say there are no guaranteed wins in this league. And I do think some fans have looked past these two games ahead to City, just assuming these were bankers. And unfortunately, that's not the case. And when you're going up against the City side that are capable of doing what this City side are doing, then the reality is that you can't afford to drop points. You can't afford to look, lose focus. You can't afford to go to look too far ahead. And for the record, I don't think this side are cracking under the pressure per se. I think the problem is a little bit different, but it's all subjective to some degree. So, you know, we could all have our opinions, but I'll go on to explain why I don't think it's a que- it's a case that these players are actually cracking under the pressure. I think something else is happening. And I think that something else will lead to an increase of pressure 
which is why you know the guys kind of have to get it together soon otherwise we could see a sort of uh, a, a break as it were but i'm i'm still fairly optimistic and after the after the game after the result i wasn't particularly you know for some reason the liverpool result really bothered me more than this one weirdly as silly as that sounds the liverpool one i think bothered me because it just it just felt a little bit like like I said it was the combination of you know playing a Liverpool team that you know for those 20 minutes you are clearly better than you're best in them and you don't go you don't go and put your foot on their neck and it's a Liverpool team who at Anfield have taken points off City so you know there's an immediate um, advantage that you can gain points wise over Man City if you see that game out and you're playing clearly better than them and then just due to genuine, what I want to call, um, yeah, just I, for some reason you let them back in. Um, that that bothered me more, I think, in this game. The reason I wasn't as bothered at the end, disappointed, absolutely disappointed, 100%. But the reason it didn't hit me the way that Anfield one did is because I think this result was born out of complacency. Not in, not in, not entirely, not in its entirety. But I do think there's a degree to which complacency was the reason for this result. And weirdly, if you're a team who, um, if you're a team who's going for a league, and complacency sets in with seven games to go, I do think that's an easier fix than some other problems a manager might have. If the teams build-up play suddenly just stopped working because the players forgot their automatisms or, you know, if, if players were, you know, we had injuries to Saliba and Zinchenko, for example, if if more key players got injured or if you know, Bukai Saka and Martinelli suddenly just couldn't hit the target with their shots. If we had other things happening that were more um, detrimental to the way we play, then I'd be more nervous. But I think complacency is something the manager can put a rocket up them and, and get them to focus because the complacency sets in in part because you either are or at least you believe you are. And in this case, I think it's both. You're better than the team you're playing and you know it. And it leads you to not have that ruthless edge. And I think that's something the manager should be able to deal with in sessions with the players the difficulty I have, though, is, and I'll get onto this a bit more later, these players have no business being complacent. They, they've not done anywhere near enough for complacency to be a thing that they have. They should still be hungry. They should still be hungry. I'm talking a kid that's been sent to bed with no dinner, waking up in the morning, hungry. There is no reason these players should have an ounce of complacency at all. They all have something to prove. They all have something to to do. You know, none of them have won the Premier League with Arsenal, right? We've got Premier League winners in Jesus and Zinchenko, sure. But none of these players have done it, you know, where, with the cannon on their chest. I, I, For the life of me, I cannot understand what would even lead these players to take their foot off the gas when they're comfortably ahead in a Premier League game when they don't have a game for another week. You tell me they've got a midweek Champions League fixture quarterfinal you know, I, I I still wouldn't like it, but I could somehow, you know, rationalise in my mind how the players might be trying to balance going for the game while conserving their energy. But to be complacent 2-0 up at West Ham when you play Southampton, 
you know, a week later. I, I can't, my brain can't understand that. But for some reason, I just wasn't as vexed at the end of this game as I was at the end of the Liverpool game. But nonetheless, we'll just, we'll deal with all of that. You know, saw the starting lineup, heard some rumblings beforehand that Zinchenko might be getting benched, uh, which, you know, I looked at it and said to myself, okay, we're going to lose the player that is, you know, integral to connecting our, our midfield and attack to um, making sure our progressive passing and our build-up play through the lines and through the thirds happens the way it's supposed to happen. Zinchenko is the guy for that. You know, he'll receive the ball from the goalkeeper or from one of the centre-backs, play it around the corner. Suddenly, we're in the, the middle third. He'll, you know, form a double pivot with party, um, exchange passes, say, with Shaka or Martinelli wide, um, pop it to Gab... Uh, pop it to party, suddenly we're in the final third. And then he's right there in the mix of, you know, interchanging with Shaka or Martinelli or whoever he needs to, to help progress the ball, stretch the defence and create space for for passes. So we're losing that player. And replacing him with Kieran Tierney, who's a brilliant, brilliant left back. Uh, I, what did go from my mind, though, is we've got no Saliba, instead we've got Holding. We've got no Zinchenko, so we've got Tierney. So I did wonder to what degree this would impact the overall balance of the squad when it came to playing our football. For example, would we see uh, Tierney do more of the Ben White thing and Ben White sort of step more infield and, and form that too? Or would Tierney sort of just be expected to do, you know, a sort of Zinchenko analogue to the best of his ability? That That's one thing I was curious about. What also went from my mind when I saw the team sheet was this team is good enough to beat West Ham. You know, this the, the the West Ham ground is massive. The fans are disconnected from the players. It doesn't have the atmosphere of some other grounds in stadiums. So if you are someone who buys into all of that atmosphere stuff, then, you know, this isn't a ground you should be have any kind of apprehension to go to, quite frankly. The players are in a tough moment. The manager's in a tough moment. You know if you can bag a goal or two early against them, the fans are going to be feeling some type of way. So everything was there for us to take West Ham apart. For That's how I felt at the start when I saw the starting lineup. Equally, in the back of my mind, I thought to myself, this is the kind of game where you expect to win and you might not, for no other reason than variance. Sometimes football throws up these results where you walk in and you expect to win and you don't. That for me, for example, was Southampton earlier in the season. Southampton away that ended 1-1. I fully expected us to get the win in that game. To this day, I, I'm, not, <laughs> I'm not joking when I say if there are two games this season that still to this day leave me feeling some type of way, it was the Man City defeat at the Emirates and it was the Southampton draw. Those two games still leave me feeling some type of way because I just, for the life of me, do not understand. Southampton were brilliant that day. Don't get me wrong. They were really, really good. Fully energetic, pressed us off the ball. You know, for me, Leeds were probably, outside of playing Man City, for example, Leeds were probably the tough, gave us the toughest test um, of any team this season. Leeds were brilliant that day. And, you know, they missed a penalty and missed some chances. I think they, did they have a penalty uh, chalked off as well, I think. Um, 
you know, we got our goal and we held on, got the three points, got the hell out of Ellen Road. But the Southampton game still, you can hear it in my voice, I'm still livid, still livid about that game, I'm sorry. And in the back of my mind, I felt like this could be one of those games, not for any reason other than the Premier League does this sometimes. You just go into a game, you should win, and sometimes you just don't. Uh, so that could also be why this game didn't hit me as hard as the Liverpool one did, because the Liverpool one, I was a nervous wreck. I was calm, and then I was nervous, and then I was calm, and then I was nervous, and then I was calm again. But then once the game starts, you're fully in it, aren't you? You know. So, yeah, the Liverpool one, I think I was pretty calm to a point, but then the game starts and the nerves kick in, and then you start to realise what you could do, and you could beat Liverpool, and you know what it would mean for the season and the message it would send. But this one, in the back of my mind, I was either like, "These play, this team's good enough to beat them, so let's go beat them." But in the back of my mind, I thought, mm, "This could be one of those games, couldn't it?" You know, we we have a penchant um, last season for turning one defeat into two or one draw into two. We drop points in multiple games in batches: Brentford, City, Chelsea. You know, Manchester United, Everton, for example, Palace, Brighton. Um, who was it? It was Palace, Brighton, Southampton. Um, so we, you know, Newcastle Spurs at the end of the season, we would have batches of points dropped. And for the most part, we kind of curtailed that this season. We had the blip, the New Year blip, right, where it was Everton, Brentford, City. Um, but otherwise, we kind of kept our losses or draws to sort of one-offs. United, one-off. Southampton, one-off. So, you know, I spoke about this in a preview and I you know, spoke about the need for this not to be one of those things where we turn one game where we drop points to two games in a row where you drop points because that begets three games in a row where you drop points or four games in a row and you see how it goes. So that was in the back of my mind. So when we went 1-0 up, uh, I was amazed because it felt like the game had barely started. We, you know, playing well. I did notice West Ham were putting in a lot of effort. We were playing them off the park. But it wasn't because they were terrible. They, If you go back and watch that game, particularly watch the first 20 minutes, it's not that West Ham are terrible. They are really putting in the effort. They're putting in a shift. In the run-up to the first goal, when Party does the big switch over to Saka, watch Declan Rice. He's right into Party. He's inches away from blocking the ball. Inches. It, it really is close. The players are really sort of getting to us. They're going in rough in terms of the challenges and tackles, not in sort of overtly unfair way or anything like that but they're just being very robust in how they close us down so I thought okay West Ham are on it but we looked fantastic the way we were popping the ball about our movement was dynamic we were being you know we were being the protagonist really we were getting the ball shifting around moving around the players kept moving it was brilliant to see so like I said when we were one up I thought fantastic West Ham are giving us a game and we are playing it around them regardless this is how we played at our best this season when teams would come at us and we'd still deal with it. You know, um, for that goal, you see Saka gives the ball um, to White. They do a give and go. Saka gets the ball and brings it sort of partway across the front of the penalty area in front of the West Ham defensive line. He then gives it to Party, who sat on the edge of the, the penalty area. He plays in Erdegaard, slides the ball behind that defensive line to White, who's run onto it, and he just cuts it back perfectly, square ball across the six-yard box. Jesus is there at the the back post. He's run past Sufal and uh, Bowen. Neither of them know that Jesus is there, and Jesus has the easy tap in at the back post. It was a pinpoint perfect pass from Ben White in the build-up to that goal. Fantastic cross. It may seem easy, but it had to go in a very, very, very uh, precise place, and Jesus had to make a very, very, very precise run to get there. Um, and both of them did their job fantastically. 
and it's exactly what I spoke about in the uh, preview podcast for this game, the build-up in and around their defensive line, their players will switch off if you do that. If you can pop the ball around quickly around their defensive line on the edge of their area, their players will not pick up markers. Sorry, their, their players won't pick up uh, players, opposition players. Markers will lose their players. They will become disjointed. It's been a fixture of their season. They really struggle with that ball um, being popped around on the floor around their defence. It's something they've just struggled with. So it was no surprise to me when we scored that goal because that's exactly what we needed to do to get at them. And it's exactly why, for example, when Jesus made that run, Sue Fowl and Bowen didn't see him. And you'll see something similar for the second goal as well. Uh, they, you know, West Ham were completely switched off. And you'll see it with, I think, Ben Rama in the second goal. If you watch, Martinelli does a big cross to the back post. Because we're occupying the five attacking channels so well, we have a man on the overlap, which is partly what the whole positional play thing is supposed to allow us to do, create overlaps. If we, you know, pull a side to one side, there's an extra person on the other side and vice versa. In this instance, we do the big switch, which means that the ball is over the West Ham defence before they can react. Um, this time it's Erdegaard on the overlap. He's on the sort of left-hand side of their uh, penalty area, so our attacking right side. Ben Rama has a quick look over his shoulder, but by the time he has that quick look over his shoulder, Erdegaard's past him. Again, big switch, West Ham defensive line switch off. We can ghost him behind, and literally Erdegaard is there, back post, to volley the ball past Fabianski under no pressure. Ball goes through Fabianski's legs, so a little bit fortunate, but Jesus was right there for the rebound if necessary on the follow-up. Didn't need it. 2-0. Easy peasy. It's 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 that simple. It's a fant fantastic play from us. What comes next is us just, you know, kicking the ball about. We're just kicking the ball about. It's 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 that simple. We're comfortable, we're on top. We feel like we've got the 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 you know the world at our feet. Around 17 minutes, Tierney gives the ball away. He loses the pass on the edge of zone 14. Antonio picks the ball up, runs at holding, sort of from the halfway line, takes holding all the way back to the edge of our area. Holding makes a rash challenge, which gives a free kick away. Um, he wasn't touched tight enough on Antonio, um, so the ball goes all the way back, and he gives away the the the, the free kick um, near the the far side of our penalty area. And that was the first indication of how we could be punished when we got just a bit too comfortable in that situation. Tierney gives the ball, um, gives the ball away, gets cut out. Um, the ball gets to, um, to Antonio, and he just he takes he takes a holding on an adventure, just runs him back. And I remember, you know, some of the some of the times under Emery, <clears throat> under um, Wenger, for example, where our defenders would have a player run at them and they would just collapse towards our goal, you know, and it just brought me right back to that. Just didn't engage him, didn't get touch tight. And in large part, I think it's because holding, you know, Antonio's absolute, you know, unit, good player, really physical, clever, good movement. So it's understandable he's not going to want to engage him. But do you know what? It's early enough in the game while you still got some cover, bring him down. Bring him down in the middle of the pitch. Don't let him run you back all the way to the penalty area. Just bring him down in the middle of the pitch. You might get the yellow card. But if we've got control of the ball for the majority of the game, you're not going to, you know, we, we can manage that. But don't let him get all the way to the penalty area and then bring him down on the edge of our area for a free kick. That's, 
you know, and and these are some of the, the small margins. So while players like Tierney and Holding didn't necessarily um, weren't necessarily at fault for either of the goals we conceded, the overall momentum of the game, the game state, the overall play is influenced by what they can do and what they can't do in certain points. And we'll see that again, both in the run-up to some of the goals and in the way the game state changed. Because one thing I was trying to do when I went back and looked at the game, and I implore anyone who has time to go back and re-watch the game, as painful as it might be, genuinely do that because you will see some things that you will be surprised, as you always do with rewatches. There are things that you don't see clearly in the moment that you will see when you do a rewatch. And one of the things that comes up when you rewatch this game is the moment when the game changes, right? People spoke about Liverpool, Anfield, Shaka, the crowd, all of that, you know. There is a particular point in this game where West Ham realised they can get us. This was a precursor to that. This was sort of like a little snippet that kind of just gave them a whiff that they could. Um, but, you know, after that, we're still a prime pressure. Uh there's still a lot of good build-up around 21 minutes. Erdegaard does a lovely back flick to party who gives it back to him. And then Erdegaard nearly does another clever flick in the penalty to Saka. So we're still playing, but we're getting into the realm of overplaying despite that warning we got um, just earlier. West Ham has started working even harder at this point. They're really pushing onto us. They're sort of really getting physical. And it is around the 30-minute mark in the run-up to the penalty where the game materially changes. Um it's where the intensity of West Ham goes up. It's where our intensity and ability to build up drops. And obviously it's where the penalty um, gets given away and the game materially changes from a, from the point of view of the scoreline. So in this instance, what you'll see is holding, bringing the ball out from the area really, really slowly. He carries it into pressure. Then as soon as he's pressed by Paqueta, he immediately plays sideways past the Tierney. Now, in on one in one instance, it doesn't help because it slows down the game and creates less less opportunity for movement to be able to play through them. But on the other hand, it sucks Paqueta into him, which allows him to play to to Tierney, which should allow us an opportunity to play through the press. And we very nearly do. So it's one of those: it's six of one, half a dozen of the other. Ultimately, we could get away with it, um, but it leaves us less options just purely because of the speed of of the pass. But like I said we should be able to get away with it because once the ball gets played to Tierney, he's getting pressed by Bowen and he finds the pass through the lines into Partey. So whatever we feel about what position um, we got put in before that, the ball, the out ball to Partey gets played and Partey sees Rice coming and what he thinks of doing is he thinks of using Rice's momentum because if you rewatch it, um, Rice is absolutely flying into party. He's going full pelt. He's he's not sort of jockeying or shuffling. He's sprinting towards party. He's he's going for that press. So what party wants to do is use Rice's momentum against him, flick it around him and send part uh, sorry and send Rice to the shops. He's thinking Rice is going to be all the way over there and suddenly we're going to have a break on the West Ham defensive line. That's what he's trying to do. Unfortunately for him, Rice manages to get some contact with the ball. And suddenly he's in. And the worst part is it's now a West Ham three on two in the Arsenal penalty area. Rice slices it to Paqueta. Gabriel senses danger. And if you look at where Gabriel is when Paqueta receives the ball, if he were to try and make a standing tackle, he wouldn't get there in time. There's too much distance. That's why he does the slide. Unfortunately for him, 
the moment he does the slide, he realizes he's made a mistake because he's not going to get there. That's why he pulls out the leg. It's too late. He makes contact. Paqueta goes down. Clearest penalty you'll see. So with that, um, Ben Rama steps up, takes the penalty, sends Ramsdale the wrong way, and it's 2-1 to West Ham. And yeah, now, now you 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 sense that feeling where you think to yourself, okay, where are we going to make this 3-1 or 4-1 and kill this game? Or this is going to be a 2-2 and we drop points. And you're just waiting to see how the players react. It's it's frustrating yet again to concede a goal before halftime because, you know, if you go into halftime, like last week, if we could have gone into halftime 2-0 up, it might it might change something in terms of the team talk, but also the way the players approach the second half. But there is something about conceding a goal just before halftime that really seems to mess with you, and I do not know what it is, but there's something psychologically that's just a bit off about conceding just before halftime, particularly when the tides just started to turn slightly in game state. It's one thing when you're just completely dominating and then the team gets a shot goal. But when the tide starts to turn just slightly and then you concede, it does some it does something funny. And I don't know why. So now we're two one up and there's just a few things really. You know, I spoke already about um holding and sort of the technical quality and composure to carry the ball into midfield under pressure from the press. Six of one, half a dozen of the other. If he has more composure and ability on the ball, he's less impacted by the Paqueta press and potentially plays a better pass, plays it sooner, plays it through the line even, um, through the lines even. And that's where I say it's not about holdings being bad. He's not a bad player. We managed to play through the press with holding and Tierney. It's just obviously party lost the ball. But we might be able to bypass the West Ham attack entirely straight from holding if he's a better ball progressor, um, which means we don't end up in that situation in the first place. Um, again, when Tierney receives the ball and he's under pressure from Bowen, again, with a Zinchenko there, he might be able to drop the shoulder, slide past Bowen, and suddenly we've taken him out of the game and we're able to press, progress up the pitch wide instead of through the middle. So ifs, buts, maybes, it's not, this isn't to slaughter them at all. It's just to show that with the style that we are playing, if we have particular players or particular qualities in certain parts of the pitch, there are things that we can do that are superpowers. So the reason you don't, the reason we look at what Holding and Tierney did in relation to that goal and say they didn't do anything wrong is because it's true. They didn't do anything wrong. But if you have a superpower, it's not about what you do wrong. It's about what you can do that most other players can't. And that's what Zinchenko's given us this season. That's what Saliba's given us this season. They do things that other players can't, which allows us to create chances that other teams don't. And that's what we've lost. It's not because Holding and Tierney are bad at all. Brilliant, brilliant players. It's about styles and systems. And that's that for me is where the drop-off becomes more of a problem, not because they're actually bad players. Um, but that being said, in this instance, as I said, we manage to play around the press. In any case, it gets to party. And look, party does this in every game, at least once. Um, it's just on this occasion, Rice catches him. For example, in the reverse fixture against West Ham, Ben White did a flick over Ben Rama in the build-up to the Enketia goal. So, and it came off. And we all said, what a lovely bit of skill. So if party does it and sends Rice to the shops, he's getting applauded for a lovely bit of skill. But because Rice caught him, 
they end up three three v two in our penalty area, and you know we end up conceding from the ensuing penalty. So it's just one of those things. It's you know you can you can slaughter the guy for for a lot of things. For me, I just think you know a player getting caught out once for doing something that they do in every game is just a bit it's it's just a bit like yeah he he does that every game he just rarely gets caught on the ball when he does um but you still have to you still have to criticize for the fact that he lost the ball like if you're going to do it it's because you can do it so if you do it and get caught you get criticized and so he should um to be honest i think it's i think it's i want i don't want to be hypercritical because when you see a goal scored like that um you know your first your first instinct is very much there was some kind of breakdown of failure but as i said i don't think holding did anything wrong i don't think tierney did anything wrong per se the execution could have been better in some instances um from from all parties involved in terms of how they played out but they didn't do anything wrong party was the one who who you know went for the audacious flick and they didn't come off so ultimately it's on him as for gabriel as i said if he stood there maybe he should have stood there and given Ramsdale the chance um, to save the Paqueta shot. Uh, but then 1v1 versus the penalty, Ramsdale had a chance to save Paqueta shot from a, uh, sorry, Ben Rama penalty from a similar distance to Paqueta would have had the shot. So, you know, swings and roundabouts. I think by the time it gets to Paqueta, either Gabriel stands and let Paqueta gets the shot off and see if Ramsdale could save it, or he tries to put him off. But unfortunately, the distance is too great. He slides in, catches him, and it's a penalty. What can you do? The problem I have, though, is that after that happened, Partey goes to pieces. Just goes to pieces. I don't know what happened, but like you could even see a moment in the game where he's sort of like slapping himself on the head, trying to get himself to fix up. It's just he goes to pieces, and I don't understand why he has to do that. It's just literally, okay, they've scored a goal. You know, we, listen, none of us have been Premier League footballers, right? We None of us know that pressure. None of us know that pressure. It must be insane to have that many people just going after you. How many millions of people watching? Your friends and family are watching. None, but they are seasoned professionals, um, particularly him by this point. So I have no idea why he can't say to himself, okay, in my head, nil-nil, reset, we go again. But instead, he just, he gets flustered. Um, you know, he he get he sort of, he gets a card shortly afterwards. He sort of takes out, I think, Ben Rama, brings him down when he's running into a crowd scene of Arsenal players, giving away fouls. He just lost his composure, um, which is why I think, you know, him getting hooked in the second half. I I don't know about whether or not he's carrying some kind of injury or whatever else, but I think he got hooked because he he lost his composure. That's that's how it looked to me anyway. I could be wrong. Tell me what you think. But after this point, our build-up wasn't great. You know, West Ham had the lift. They were applying pressure. And for the rest of the half, it was just nervy, to be honest. Um, I could see Erdogan was working hard to try and just give the team an injection of urgency. You know, pick up the ball, drive forward, give it, demand it, go again. But it just wasn't leading to anything. Shaka was anonymous. Like I said, Party had lost his composure. Uh, we didn't have as much quality on the ball in terms of control and build-up because Zinchenko wasn't in the game, obviously. So Tierney, as good as he is at certain things, that isn't his strong suit of his game. He was giving the ball away. Um, I thought Ben White was doing well. Saka was doing okay, but just okay. Martinelli, 
I don't know. I just I don't think this was the game for him, um, really. So yeah, just a lot of things weren't really clicking, weren't really connecting. So the game ended, first half ended, and you know that's pretty much where we uh, where we got to. For me, the second half started much the same way the first half ended. Uh, we saw pretty much immediately holding uh, was there for a good defensive header, heading the ball away. West Ham got a corner. He headed it away again for another corner, another good defensive header. So we were under immediate pressure. And that's one thing I will say about holding. His heading ability is definitely better than Saliba in the air. That's one area that Saliba had to work on and holding had a good few defensive headers in this game. Um, and, uh, you know, that, se- that sequence being an example of that. Uh, so... But the fact that we, the fact that he had to do that was testament to West Ham essentially applying more pressure. So whatever happened in the dressing room at halftime, David Moyes had clearly gotten them more of the same, more pressure um, to see what they can do. I thought to myself, okay, let's see how we respond. The moment um, that sequence sequence of events happened, I said to myself, okay, more of the same, back to square one. They're going to put us under pressure. We're going to struggle. It's just it's interesting how certain times you just see certain things and you can quickly see what kind of game you're going to be in. And that's just a game state thing. I think the players would have realized it as well. And sometimes in games that happens, you got, you're under pressure and you have to be able to ride that out before you can then turn the tide and go again. It's a game state thing. And so the players would have clearly seen West Ham put them under pressure, get more physical and, you know, going long, big sort of big balls, stretch the pitch. Um, and yeah, it, it, it would have been enough for us to deal with. When they go long, we don't win the second ball. We can't get the game under control. They come back at us and the game gets disjointed. We can't, we can't um, you know, string our passes together and it's it's just more of the same. So at that point, even at 2-1, if we'd slowed the game down, if we'd, you know, managed to change the way we play a little bit, disrupt them a bit, be a little cute with some, some tactics, that kind of thing, anything to kind of just switch the energy and the, the game state, but we just didn't. Uh, it was um, it was incredibly annoying, but the one thing that did happen that could have swung the game in our favour was, of course, the penalty. Um, Antonio giving away a penalty with ball striking his outstretched arm, can't have anything to complain about, really. Jesus held on to the ball for a while, um, and as we've seen them do in recent games, you know he gives it off to the player who's actually going to take the penalty, which is Bukayo Saka. He struck the ball well wide of Penagoria, similar to um, Salah last week for Liverpool. Um, And you just had that feeling of inevitability when it went wide. You have to say, I mean, I for one look at it and there are times when a player misses a penalty and you're just raging. And then there's other times when a player misses a penalty and you kind of just throw your hands up and go, oh, well. And that was it for me. I just thought, ah, oh, well, yeah, okay. Yeah, it's one of those days. And that feeling of inevitability. Now, you can say the pressure got to him, but I don't know how much I'd buy that. Listen, if you think the pressure got to him and that's why I missed, fair enough. I just think it was a bad penalty. I just think it was a bad penalty. I think he struck it badly. I I, I think he wanted to put it, you know, bottom corner and he just sent it well wide. I, I just think he executed it poorly. But if him executing it poorly was because he, felt the pressure and it got to him then then you know I won't I won't argue with anyone on the point but I just I just think it was a poorly executed penalty I don't think the pressure got to him as such 
You know, I don't think we play the kind of football we played in the first sort of 20, 30 minutes of the game if we're feeling the pressure. You know, I just I just think it's it's sometimes players miss penalties. Um in any case, Odegaard was right over to him, which I thought was good, you know, just sort of quick pat on the head and said, Don't worry about it, we keep going. Um, but just for me, as I said to you at the start of the podcast, there were some games that come, you know, they come along and you just you just get reminded that actually anyone can get got in this league. And there were some games where you just know a team is going to drop points. And I just, I like I said, I've been having that feeling in the back of my mind that this is just one of those games that everyone expects us to win and we just might not. And a few minutes later, just a few minutes later, that thing that you feel is inevitable happens. West Ham scored to make it 2-2. Uh, there's a throw into West Ham, headed away by Gabriel. You know, our defensive line pushes up as the ball's cleared. He gets pumped back into the box. And our entire defensive line just miss Bowen. We just don't see him. Martinelli vacates the penalty area. Tierney doesn't see Bowen at all. And Bowen just volleys it past Ramsdale. Um, he, Ramsdale got a hand to it, so but couldn't keep it out. He might feel like he could have done better. But, you know, I think a player volleys the ball into the ground hard you know, at that kind of distance, then it's a, you know, if, if Ramsdale saves it, we say that's a fantastic save. We say that's a sensational save. So I don't, I think it's a bit harsh to say that he failed to keep out in the sense that he, he did something wrong. I just think it was a really well-struck shot. And while I would have, while he might look back and go, I think I could have saved that, you know, I don't blame him too much. Tierney lost Bowen, um, in, in that situation, but the entire defensive line are pushed up. So it was one of those things where if you push up, it's it's milliseconds, right? A decision has to be made in milliseconds. He pushes up. Bowen's just sort of dropped wide to the side and he's decided to go forward when everyone pushes up and the ball's landed right there for him. So it's just a good bit of play from West Ham and our defensive line got caught out. So um, there's not really much you can do about that. After that, we immediately go back up and suddenly there's a bit more urgency, but we're still not quite getting things right. You know, Martinelli picks up the ball. He has it on the edge of the area. Um, there's about 35 minutes of the game left. He calls a shot to towards Fabianski, easily saved. But West Ham are still finding ways to put us a bit under pressure. As I said, they're using long balls to, to stretch our players across the pitch. We're not winning the second balls. We can't, you know, we can't keep things together. So, you know, it's, it's an incredibly annoying, frustrating day. We did still have chances, though. For example, around the 64th minute, Jesus had the ball. Um, sorry, we, I think we had the ball sort of on the edge of zone 14. Jesus is just on the edge of the penalty area. He's got a defender behind him. Despite the fact we've got, you know, the two, uh, two banks of two banks of four, the West Ham have sort of blocking the, the central parts of the penalty area. Jesus is demanding the ball and demanding the ball. He's backing up against the defender, demanding the ball. He receives the ball between the lines and he manages to get it, hold off the defender and play the ball around the corner to Martinelli, wide left. He then makes a perfectly timed run into the box. Martinelli squares it across the six-yard box and Jesus misses it by inches. Now, if that goes in, that's a fantastic bit of play by Jesus. It's a fantastic goal. We go three to up with about half an hour left, something like that. And it may well be a different game, but just inches. I'm talking Gascoigne 96. So we had we had our chances and it's small margin sometimes at this level. We just couldn't get control of the game. And I think that's why 
we saw the Jorginho for Partey and Trossard for Jesus sub. Now, I would have been interested to see Trossard come on and Trossard and Jesus both be on the pitch at the same time. You know, if we're talking about control and playing through the lines and the ability to get a goal, I would have personally, I would have even preferred if we saw Trossard come on for Martinelli because it wasn't, it wasn't a game where we were really going to be able to like, it wasn't a game where West Ham were pushing up their entire uh, defensive line. They weren't playing a high line. You know, we had enough of the ball to control the game that I don't think we, we definitely needed more dynamism in attack, but I don't think it was Martinelli's day. You know, even if you told me it was Trossard for Shaka, for example, we kept Martinelli to stretch, to stretch um, West Ham, then fair enough. But for me, I just would have loved to see Jesus and Trossard both stay on the pitch. Now it could be that given the extent of Jesus's injury before, they're just managing his minutes, no more than 70 minutes on this occasion. It could be that, which fair enough. And the Trossard and Jorginho sub had the desired effect of helping us control the game. We certainly got on the ball more. Trossard had some brilliant touches on the ball, some neat flicks around the corner, excellent ball retention. Um, but we just didn't necessarily have the speed to create the separation um, to be able to then go at the West Ham defenders when we sort of move the ball around. So we just needed, maybe needed a bit more dynamism on the pitch. Later in the game, Vieira came on for Tierney, Shaka went to left-back, Nelson came on for Martinelli, but again, it was much of a muchness. Um, nothing really changed. I think we tried to go for it. There was a degree to which the subs threw me a bit, but at the same time, I kind of looked at our bench and I just didn't think there were players there that were going to materially change the nature of the game. It's not like we had a six-foot-two striker to send the ball up to or anything like that. I just think, really, if we were going to win this game, it would be our quality on the ball with the players that we have. And ultimately, we just couldn't find a way through and the game ended 2-2. And that's just what it was. Um, so, yeah, a disappointing result. I kind of just sort of, as I said, threw my hands up and thought, yeah, that tracks. You know, we're in the running and a game that everyone expects to win. We, you know, conspire to, to drop points in somehow. It's just, it's how it goes. And so, you know, while there was disappointment, as I said, in the back of my mind, it was something that was playing on my mind. So I wasn't entirely shocked when it happened. But yeah, it, it, it is disappointing, no, no matter which way you swing it. But it still puts us in a position whereby we're top of the league. And even if City win their game in hand, we'll still be top of the league. It just means that our approach to some of the games coming up might need to be a little bit different. But we'll go into that more in part two. Um, so yeah, end of part one, join me for part two. We'll talk a little bit more about that. Welcome back to part two of the Hybrid Club podcast with me, C. Says. Um, just talking about the fallout from the 2-2 draw against West Ham. I think statistically, it is quite telling, to be honest. Um, our expected goals was 2.8 to their 1.8. They had 16 shots to our 11. They had three on target to our five. Possession, we had 71.7% possession. Um, we had 55 final third entries to their 27. We, our expected threat was 3.8 to their 1.3. But look at our deep touches, 39 to their 37. But look at our so 14 touches, 39 to their 7. I What this tells you statistically, I think, matches up to what we saw. We were definitely the more threatening team. And we definitely had more of the ball. But ultimately, when it came to chance creation, we weren't necessarily that more threatening than them, per se. 
I I really do feel as though this is a game that got away from us and it was of our own making. You know, West Ham were really good in terms of the defensive intensity and the way they pressed, but it was nothing we couldn't handle because we were handling it for a good 30 minutes. We just played with our dinner. We played with our food. I felt like we were... And I, and I, I say this with um, all the love and respect in the world for these players, but I feel like these players at 2-0 up, 20 minutes into the game, played this game with the emotional commitment of a disappointed stepdad forced to play with his stepson in the park. You know what I mean? Like, he's physically there, but he's not mentally or emotionally present. Do you know what I mean? That's kind of how I felt about these players. Um they they were there for a nice little kickabout with their mates. They weren't taking that game seriously at that point. Not as seriously as they should. That's two games in a row we've thrown away a two-goal lead. Um, as far as I know this season, I don't think Man City have thrown away a two-goal lead at any point this season. But yeah, it's it looks bad. Now, it happened for me for two different reasons. I think Liverpool woke up and found their quality last week and when Liverpool play the way they can play, particularly at home, we saw what that looks like and they played us off the park. We didn't get played off the park here. We just gave the game up and and, and West Ham defended robustly and we just didn't have any answers because we lost our ability to um, progress the ball well, win second balls and ultimately find a way through. I just think our quality failed us in the end. That's That's it for me. But uh, one one interesting thing I did see online, um, XG difference by game state. So our XG, our XG difference per 90 when broken up by game state makes for interesting reading. Um, I think it was James York from Statsbomb. It shows Arsenal have spent 1,507 minutes in winning positions this season, but our XG is less than 0.5 per 90 during that time, during those winning positions. So in short, we have less expected goals while we're in winning positions. This shoots up dramatically when we're losing or drawing. So what does that allow us to infer? Well, to me, it allows us to infer that we get comfortable when we're in winning positions and create less chances as a result, or rather less quality chances, less good quality chances as a result. Whereas when we're down a goal or when we're drawing, there's a sense of urgency, which leads to an increase in quality of chances. It does seem to ring true, doesn't it? You know, um, I don't know. I don't want to over-index the last couple of games because, for example, we put our foot on the necks of Leeds when we played them. We put our foot on the necks of Palace when we played them. We put our foot on the necks of Fulham when we played them. So it's not like this team doesn't have the ability to get three or four goals when it needs to. But there is something about the last couple of weeks where this team just hasn't quite kicked on the way it should. So I don't think we should ignore those previous results where we did go on and get those extra goals. When we played West Ham earlier in the season, they went one up and then we got one, then we got two, then we got three. Um, I I do wonder though, why in these last two games in particular, the players have just not kicked on when we've we've sort of taken the lead. That's the part that I'm struggling with because it's a very interesting quirk that in both games, again, for different reasons in my opinion, but in both games, we go two goals up and end up not winning. So it's not a case of we go two goals down and bring it back to 2-2 in one game. 
or for example, in both games, it's 1-0, 1-1, 2-1, 2-2. No, it's specifically two goals up, let that slip, draw 2-2. That's a very interesting quirk. Uh, so yeah, I just I see what we're doing in those instances in the, these last couple of games when we go up in the first half, the comfortability with which we do certain things, and that makes me uncomfortable. I'm uncomfortable with the way we knock the ball about without any intense purpose once we're comfortably up. You know, you really, what you want to see is when you're playing a team and you go 2-0 up, you want you want to be baying for blood. Do you know what I mean? You just want to, you just want to put your foot on the neck and keep pressing. That's, that's just what you want to do, uh, you know, metaphorically speaking, of course, figuratively. Um, but to, to, just have that drop off of intensity and purposeness of play. So it's not that the quality of football wasn't there. The quality of football was there. It's the intensity and the purposeness of the play. It's, it's the effectiveness of which you play your football, but with purpose. That for me is, is what, what was missing a little bit. Um, and I know people have been talking about pressure, but as I said before, you don't start the way we did against Liverpool, start the way we did at West Ham. If the pressure is getting to you, I think it's that combination of complacency and that lack of ruthless edge. Now, look, we were, of course, missing players, right? When you are missing your first choice players, you're going to have some deficiencies. Um, you know, as we said, they went long, pushed us back. Without Saliba and Zinchenko, two of our best passes, two of our best high volume passes, I think we struggled to progress the ball in certain areas. Um, we got ponderous in other areas. The speed with which we progressed the ball, our ability to push up, I think, got impacted. And don't get me wrong, as we've seen from the deal, we had plenty of the ball. But I'm talking about the speed of which we go from back to front, which impacts the degree to which the other side are set in position, ready to defend. There are these small, small margins on a professional level that make all the difference. And I just think you miss 50% of your defensive line, particularly when that 50% contributes to some of your biggest passing combinations I just think that's going to have an impact and it did but that for me that explains maybe why we didn't blow them off the park but it doesn't necessarily explain to me why we didn't win if that if you get understand my meaning um and look if with Man City and it's, it's stupid to even compare because look at the resources that they built their squad with you know if Ruben Diaz and Manny Kanji get injured for example they have Laporte, Stones, Ake, even Walker, um, who could fill in. You know, for us, Saliba and Tomiyasu are out, and Rob Holding's the solution. It's not the same. But then, at the same time, if you look at uh, Man City's sort of second string starting eleven, it's Ortega, Lewis, Walker, Laporte, Gomez, Phillips, Mares, Palmer, Foden, Peron, and Alvarez. It's not a world-beating eleven. I mean, we played our second string against our quote-unquote second string against Man City in the FA Cup and we nearly got a result. If we played our first team with all of our first team players fit and Man City came to our ground with that team, I would expect us to beat that team. So gone are the days when they had Jesus and Zinchenko or Sane and Sterling on the bench for them. Those days are gone. The the, the players they have, I still think from, an, you know, in, in some respects, if you can bring, if you have players like a Mares or an Alvarez, you know, if if Carl Walker is your quote-unquote backup, I think you're in a very, very good place. Ortega as a ball-playing goalkeeper, I think, is is really good. 
but you could still argue that the problem wasn't the players were missing. The players that were missing meant we lost that game. I just, I don't believe that. I think it's the reason why we didn't just absolutely annihilate uh, West Ham, but I don't think it's why we lost. But you can't, you can't discount the impact those missing players had. Um, Yeah, I just, I just think I really, so this is where I struggle with it because I actually think it's a very simple thing. I don't think there's a lot to talk about with this game. I just think the players got complacent and um, they didn't see out the game. It's, it's that simple, or rather they didn't kill off the game. Uh, that that for me is it. And the players who were missing, you know, if we're talking about Zinchenko and Saliba, each of them per game, we're talking hundreds of passes per game that each one of them gets that we don't have. You know, that usual one-touch line-breaking zip-around-the-corner type thing that we used to do. Slower lateral passes, you know, for example holding to Tierney in the build-up to the the penalty giveaway. Lateral, slow, bringing it out. You know, we're deeper already just because um, holding's less comfortable being further off the pitch would lead to our defensive line being slightly deeper. But you see when he brings the ball out from defence, he's doing it a lot slower. He gets under a bit of pressure, lateral pass. So it's it's it, it has an impact on the overall quality of our ball, which creates which affords us the opportunity to create less good quality chances. It it all has an impact, but it's just, again, it's not the reason we lost. The reason we lost is these players didn't finish their dinner. That's that's pretty much what it boils down to. Now, complacency is, and I spoke about this a little bit at the start of the show, complacency is a thing which I would hope that Arteta could address by reminding these players of what they haven't done. You know, Man City are going out there and they're tearing teams apart. And this is a team that's won a four out of the last five Premier League titles. So they are not getting complacent, right? We have no excuse for for complacency setting in. I love these players to bits. I think, you know, it's a fantastic squad we've built and there's more to add for sure. There is more to add, but they have achieved nothing to feel complacent nothing so to to go onto a pitch to comfortably be knocking the ball around West Ham who are in a bad moment anyway does not mean you are him at all right it means nothing and it means even less when they can come back into the game disrupt your football and you can't beat them I I would really hope that these players have taken the time in since that game to look back over the game have a look at themselves have a word with themselves and remind themselves that despite the fact we have been top of the table, for the majority of the season, we have done nothing. We are actually the underdogs. That is the thing that these players have to understand. We may have been top the entire season, but we are very much the underdogs in this title race. Everyone expects us to slip up. Everyone expects us to fall away. Everyone expects Man City to catch us, overtake us, and eventually run away with it. That's what people That's what people have expected since October. So to drop points like this... They only have themselves to blame. And so I hope the players are able to kind of just take a moment, take stock and understand what is there for them, what opportunity they have to create history and do something incredible. These opportunities may not come around again. We don't know. We hope they will. We've built an exciting squad, a young squad. It can only get better. But understand, while this squad could get better, we could lose players to injury. Some players get picked off and transferred. Some players, you know, 
could could want to leave. The development may not be linear. We may go backwards before going forwards. It may not be a simple case of these players just get better and better and better. Some players might peak early. Some players may peak late, but by that point, our moment's gone. You don't know how things are going to progress. So when the opportunity is in front of you, you have to take it. You know, um, when times are good, people feel like they'll go on forever. When times are bad, people feel like they'll go on forever. Nothing is permanent. Everything passes. Look at Liverpool. You know, look at the squad they built. Look how amazing they were doing. They still managed one Premier League at that time, and now they've got a rebuild. Nothing is permanent. Look at Chelsea winning, hoovering up all the trophies that we should have won with Abramovich's money. Abramovich is gone. They're in the Todd Bowley era. Look what they're doing. But just like, look what they're doing now. Look what they could get to. Everyone's laughing their investment. What happens if all of those players come good? What happens if they clear out their squad, they shrink it down to an acceptable level and not some clown car of a of a, of a show and all of those players they bought come good? And then they go, what happens if Ten Hag is actually a brilliant manager who builds a fantastic Man United squad and they go back to the top. Things can change. So if you get met with this opportunity where you have a buffer between you and a phenomenal Man City side who have what I will call a literal terminator up front for them, you have no business getting complacent, which is why I found this aspect of the result just disappointing. Um, it's not, as I said, I just thought variance game state, we might catch West Ham on a good day and maybe they snatch a point. And like I said, that's why I wasn't overly surprised by the result, but I was disappointed in the manner with which it happened because if I would never have had complacency as a reason we drop points this season. And it looked to me like that's what it was. That lack of killer instinct is something that I think has been at this club for a little while now. Um, and talking about Arteta and cultural shifts, one of the things he has to shift in this club is the degree to which we are ruthless. We need to get more ruthless. We need to kill off games. We need to make it so that, you know, when teams come to face us, they want to go as quickly as possible. You know, there is an... Again, I don't want to keep invoking Man City because they're in a different stratosphere financially and the way they've built their squad is just ridiculous. But there is a degree to which people just feel a helplessness when they go up against them. You walk into a game with Man City and you expect to lose. The game is already half won by the time people step onto the pitch. It was like that for Liverpool for the last few seasons as well. Teams will step onto the pitch with Liverpool and just expect to lose. We need to develop that. And that will come over time. But to develop that over time, we have to kill games like this. While results like this keep happening, that sense that teams will have that we're get-attable, that will remain. No matter how many games we win, if we have results like this, people will still feel like we're get-attable, still feel like there's a soft underbelly to be exploited. So we really have to kill that narrative. And we've gone a long way to shutting that narrative down this season, but we need to get that over the line. So, you know, if a team shows up, and we play brilliant and they play brilliant and there's a ridiculous refereeing decision that takes the game away from us, that's one thing. But we can't just chuck away games and we've got a two-goal lead because we just think we're better than everybody else and so we just ease off the pressure. Like, that's just... It's not it's an, it's not an acceptable way to drop points. I mean, you never want to drop points, but there are, there, there are ways to go out on your shield and, you know, this was poor. Um, but I don't want to get on the players after a couple of disappointing results. Um, the only reason we're so disappointed is because of where these players have got us in the first place. 
So we have to make sure that we put things into perspective. These players have done fantastically well. They'll be disappointed by this result, but we have to remember how we got here in the first place. And so these players can turn it around. As I said, just a few weeks ago, they were slapping up Palace 4-1, beating Leeds 4-1, beating Fulham 3-0. So we can turn it around again. We got Southampton on Friday. We don't have to wait as long for the next fixture, which is great. These players can take it out on Southampton before we go to 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 City. Um, yeah, I I really hope that we can do that. I really hope that we can. Um, I really hope that these players can turn it around to Southampton. I really hope that they can have the killer instinct against Southampton that they should have had against West Ham because we are playing a Southampton side who are bottom of the table, who have been abject this season. The entire There have been years um, recently where Southampton have been poor, but they've managed to stretch together enough results, get enough points to lift themselves out of the relegation battle and stay in the Premier League. This season, they have been awful. Just awful which is why I found it so galling that they got a point off us earlier in the season. So if we were to play them back at the Emirates and they were to take points off us again, I would... So, as I said, I was not in a great place after the Liverpool game and then I calmed down and realised actually, you know, Liverpool were actually just very good. West Ham, like I said, I'm quite sanguine because either we're good enough to beat them or it's one of those days in, in the Barclays. And so I'm disappointed, but I can I can kind of get my head around it. I I think I will be a genuinely apoplectic if we dropped points to Southampton. I think I would be. I'm just I'm putting that out there now before I record so that there is some context because I try to make the point that anytime I record, it's how I'm feeling in the moment when I press record. It's not how I was feeling necessarily before. It's not how I'm feeling the moment I stop recording. You're just catching me in the moment as I'm talking. And so my feelings and thoughts evolve over time. So ask me about this podcast in a week's time. I might have very different feelings to how I'm talking right now. That's just how it is. It's just the recording lives on. And so people just assume this is your perpetual thoughts. This is just me in this moment. But I'm just I'm just putting it out there. Just uh, just, just throw it out there. I think I would genuinely be apoplectic if we dropped points to Southampton because they have been abject and it is criminal that they took points off us earlier in the season as it is. So I don't only want us to beat them, I want us to annihilate them. And I like Southampton as a club, actually. So it's not even about any kind of personal animus to Southampton. I just feel, I feel very slighted by the fact that they of all teams got points off us when they've been rolling over for every other team in the league. So I want us not just to beat them, but to absolutely fucking decimate them. I just really want us to absolutely obliterate them. I want us to be the death knell in their Premier League, um, in their hopes for Premier League survival. I want us to beat them so badly that they basically give up on the rest of the season and just accept their fate as needing to go back to the Championship to rebuild, to come back better. Do not for a second let this West Hat, sorry, this Southampton team run you off the pitch the way they nearly did earlier in the season and the way Leeds nearly did earlier in the season. I don't want to hear about their work rate. I don't want to hear about how young and energetic they are. I don't, none of that. I want you to obliterate them. That is what I'm hoping for. I could be wrong. It may not happen. But I, I really, really, really need that. But looking at the position we're in, as I said, we're on 74 points. City are on 70 with a game in hand. So even if they win their game in hand, 
we're still top. Their game in hand is against West Ham. They will beat West Ham. So let's effectively say we've got a one-point lead on them. Now, the way people were were sort of doing the maths in their head, I think, was very much don't lose to City, don't lose to Newcastle, and we can win the league. And the premise of that is that we go and beat Forest, we go and beat Wolves, we go and beat Brighton, we beat Southampton, we beat West Ham. Well, we haven't beaten West Ham. So what does that mean? It means that one of those games that people had mentally marked in their brain as a don't lose now has to become a must win. Now, that means we have to beat Brighton, we have to beat Forest, we have to beat Wolves. But when you look at the Newcastle and, and City games, what you're really saying is one of those has to be a win. Now, of course, if we beat City um, and you know we extend our lead over them to four points, that might be saying something crazy if if we get a draw against city they beat west ham and you know we're one point ahead of them and we managed to beat newcastle we stay one point ahead of them um and that's subject to both us and city win all winning all of our remaining games now will city win all of their remaining games they very much look like they could but there's you know seven premier league games left they've got eight surely you would imagine it has to be a draw somewhere in there for them. They can't surely just go on and win all of them. But maybe they do. And look, if City go on and win all of their remaining games, then fair play to them. Fair play, lol. Fair play to them. They'll, you know, they'll be worthy champions. And there's nothing you can say because you just got beat by a better team. That's it. Um, but what you don't want to lose is drop points to Liverpool the way we did, West Ham the way we did, Southampton lose to... City drop points against Newcastle and capitulate. That's what you don't want to do. So I'm hoping this Southampton game can be us getting back to winning, going to the Etihad, go to win the game. Don't play for a draw. Don't think you're going to lose. You know, the the game at the Emirates was disappointing, but we gave away the first goal with the Tommy Yassi mistake and a brilliant piece of goal scoring by De Bruyne. There were errors in the lead up to both the other goals we conceded so there was just a lot of individual errors that made us feel like they mopped the floor with us by the end of it and to be fair by the end of it they were worthy winners but there were individual errors that led to pretty much all of their goals if we can have you know our players fit ready raring to go for that city game if then i feel as though we'll have a better shot of taking something from that game because the fact is that city will go into that game expecting us to capitulate expecting to be able to win they will i think we can give a be- give them a better game than they're expecting and if we can do that you know we've still got chelsea of course as well as newcastle and brighton i think we can really impact how people approach us in these final games if they see us um take on city in a way that people wouldn't expect so for me, it's the mindset can't be going into City, don't lose. The mindset has to be going into City, win. And if you can't win, then don't lose. But it's very much tried to win that game because it, it fundamentally changes the entire perspective of this entire title running if we can get something from them. But the reality is they're absolutely flying right now. Absolutely flying. So I don't think any of us are looking at that City game as a banker at all in any way, shape or form. I think, I think most people are probably saying to themselves, look, it's it's we we need to try and get out of there with a draw. I think that's what most people are probably saying to themselves. If I if if they were honest and they kind of said what they were really thinking, I think a lot of people would be thinking, praying for at least a draw and let's just get the hell out of there. But you know, I'm hopeful because I've seen the football we can play, I've seen what we can do, I've seen what our so-called second string did against their first team 
in the FA Cup. So I'm confident that these players are good enough to do something. My concern is simply just we if we miss key players for that game, I just think the drop-off will be a bit too much. That's just how I feel about it. But we'll see how it goes. Um, it's It's on us. I'm very sanguine about it. I'm very chilled. And part of the reason is if we... I'll put it this. I'll put it simply like this and then I'll go. We are good enough to win the league. We are good enough to win the Premier League. The question isn't, are we good enough? The question is, can we do it? And ultimately, these players have the opportunity to do it. They've just got to go out and show it, which includes beating teams like West Ham, which they didn't, which now means they have to go and beat a team like Southampton, which they can. So that's what I'm looking forward to. West Ham's in the rearview mirror. It's behind us. You watch it. You learn lessons from it. You move forward. And so let's hope these boys can go and do that against Southampton. For me personally, after so many years in the wilderness, all I ever wanted to be was good enough to win a Premier League, good enough to challenge, good enough to compete for it. And now we're here. I actually really, really, really want to fucking win it. But tell me we're good enough. And then it's just on the players to get over the line. This is exactly where we are. We are good enough. Now it's about these players getting over the line. Just want to say it's sickening to see the racial abuse come out for Bukayo Saka again. Um, but, you know, racists will be racist in the same way that water is wet. Don't argue on me. Don't argue with me on that. Water is wet. Racism will continue to be a plague. It is what it is. The fight against it continues. The fight is multifaceted. It's on multiple levels. It's not just about, you know, saying racism is bad and calling them out. This is a constant battle against the deeper thinking, the ingrained thinking, the conditioning. Um, it goes way deeper than, you know, some idiot teenager on a laptop in their basement of their house, you know, sending offensive emojis. It goes way deeper than that. It, it's, it's present in a lot of things that people just consider normal. Uh, so we have a lot of work to do as a society and wider world to counteract it as we do with a lot of other isms out there that um, that people have to face daily. So as always, the support to um, Saka, to anyone out there who's having to deal with that kind of thing, because ultimately it's a horrible, horrible thing. But I'm also heartened by the sheer amount of support I've seen Bakayo Saka get over the, the days following the, the game. And I think it's just one of those things that we all have to work together to counteract. And regardless, win, lose or draw, we just get behind the boys, we support them and we cheer them on. And whatever happens for between here and the remainder of the season, we're all in this together. So that's it for me. You know where to find me at C-Says, C-E-A-S-E-S-A-Y-S. You know where to find us at the Hybrid Club on the socials. Please do, you know, subscribe, like, follow, retweet, repost, all of that good shit. Um, we will be back at which point I think we'll be back on Thursday or Friday um, with a look ahead to the Southampton game. And I will have more on the competition for the free signed shirt um, giveaway that we'll be doing. You may have seen just a little bit of promo on that. Had planned to drop the competition already, but just having to work out the logistics of some of the T's and C's. So we'll be dropping that um, later this week though. So anyway, in a bit people, have a good week. Put West Ham behind you. It's done. It's dusted. It's over. We move forward. We look ahead to Southampton. We have 
a Southampton steak on our plate ready for us for dinner on Friday. Let's hope these boys finish their dinner. With that, I'm off. In a bit, people. In a bit. <laughs>